In this section, we're going to talk about the differences in the pediatric immune system. So it is well known that young children have decreased immune systems because they're not fully developed as adults. And that's why a lot of times we mention to moms that breastfeeding would be best so that the child, the baby can get some immunity. Um, we also know that certain children who have certain disorders will suffer from immunodeficiency. Also, if they're receiving chemotherapy treatments, they would suffer from immune deficiency or high doses of steroids. Um, we know that some kids who are in areas or regions where they have lack of health care and poor nutrition would also lead them to have poor um, health care and decreased immune systems. And then the mother can protect the baby with her antibodies for about 20 days. Types of immunity that we have are named active and passive. So the active means that the antibody production is um, not causing the disease and it requires a healthy immune system. Passive means that we are giving this patient pre-made antibodies, such as when we do um, immunizations or we inter give them intravenous immunoglobulin, such as when we're treating Kawasaki's disease or other issues that are going on that's an autoimmune response, and then um, tetanus shots as well. When we do passive immunity, it does not provide a long-lasting immunity. It's just um, in certain intervals, and this is why we recommend childhood immunizations at different ages. Congenital rubella is one of the issues that we've had with mothers who have not received prenatal care, and this is very important for them to receive prenatal, prenatal care because the um, rubella virus can cross the placental barriers and infect the fetus, causing death or other congenital malformations. So this is why we really try to make sure that um, the mother is receiving prenatal care and that she is up to date on her immunizations. Another complication that could happen with congenital rubella is the patient could be born deaf. MMR vaccines is the other recommendation that we have for children. Um, but we can't give this if the child is, has an allergic reaction to eggs or neomycin. And then um, if the patient is immunodeficient, such as they're receiving chemotherapy, because this is an active virus, it's um, measles, mumps, and rubella, we do not recommend this for pregnant women. And then a side effect uh, after this vaccine that we always teach the parents is that there could be a, a vague rash two weeks after the vaccine, and they just should call their healthcare provider um, if this happens. Also, varicella and the chicken, which is also known as the chicken pox, is another issue that we are unable to treat children who are immunocompromised with the vaccine because it's also live virus. So any child with immunocompromised situations cannot receive this vaccine. Um, if a child who is immunocompromised does have an outbreak of varicella, also known as chickenpox, they could, it could really affect them and cause some detrimental problems. Um, they may get varicella pneumonia. 
They could have hemorrhagic lesions. It could be, they could get a secondary bacterial infection that could be life-threatening because it would lead to sepsis. They also might develop um, some type of intravascular coagulation, which would cause them to have blood clots that are fatal. And then um, another thing of note is any child who was previously healthy but is on a large dose of steroids might um, have complications if they come into contact with someone who has chickenpox or if they develop chickenpox themselves. So it's very important to, um, if a child is immunocompromised, to educate the family and the caregivers about trying to keep them out of areas where they could potentially come in contact with this virus. Um, as far as immunity to pertussis, pertussis is also known as whooping cough. And we encourage anyone who will be around an infant to have this um, immunization because infants are highly susceptible to pertussis and they don't receive any immunity from their mothers. So um, they, if they were to contract pertussis or whooping cough, it could be very, very um, make them very, very sick and they could, it could potentially lead to death. Another reason why we don't give the pertussis vaccine is um, it could cause encephalopathy. It could cause neuro problems after or systemic reactions. So we monitor the kids very carefully after they give this, um, after we give this vaccine and we educate the parents about what to watch out for. Um, and we don't give it earlier than a couple months old because we need to make sure that the child, is, their body is um, well enough to receive it. There are also other guidelines for vaccines. And um, now the CDC is changing the vaccine schedule. So I'm not making, having you uh, learn this by heart, but I do wanna make you aware of the importance of the children receiving their vaccines and other side effects that could happen with certain vaccines and we educate the parent and the caregiver about this is they could develop a fever and they, the redness at redness and soreness at the injection site, or they may be very irritable. And these are normal side effects that happen with the babies and the older children. And we talk to the parent about potentially giving them some Tylenol and rechecking their fever and things such as that. Contraindications to um, getting a vaccine is if the child has some type of illness going on, like an upper respiratory infection, cold symptoms, etc., or they may be having um, diarrhea. So uh, if this, this is happening when they're scheduled for their vaccine, we hold the vaccine and wait until the child is getting a little bit better before we give it. And then um, make sure that we talk to the parent about checking them Afterwards, making sure they don't run a fever or have some other type of adverse reaction. Um, as I said, we would educate the parents about when to call the um, provider for further instructions. If the child gets home and say they have a very high fever and Tylenol is not bringing it down, they start to have some type of seizure activity or the, they notice that a change in the cry, like the cry becomes high pitch, then we will um, have them come in to reevaluate them to see if there's uh, something else going on as far as a reaction to a vaccine. If the patient is also having 
soreness in the leg where they received the vaccine, especially the babies who aren't walking yet. We um, talked to the parent about putting a warm compress to the area and moving the legs around in a bicycle motion to help the soreness go away. And as a note to children who are walking, we don't give vaccines in the legs any, anymore. Once, there's, once they start walking, then we use um, the arms for the vaccines. So the um, next slide is just a roundabout immunization schedule. And then there's a video about when an outbreak happens and there's extra resources as well. Um, there's a slide that talks about treating fever because fevers, um, if untreated in young children, could lead to seizure activity. So we want to make sure that we treat all fevers as quickly as possible. So we'll do medications such as Tylenol. Some physicians recommend alternating Tylenol and um, NSAIDs or Motrin so that one dose they're getting Tylenol, the other dose they're getting Motrin to help keep the fever down. Um, we can do certain other things such as uh, cool compresses, but not a cold water bath because that would potentially cause the patient to have the cold response and have a seizure. So we just check them very frequently. And also because the body is working harder with this fever, they may become dehydrated. So if possible, if they don't have an increased respiratory rate, we would give them some clear fluids or something to keep them hydrated. Or it may be that they're really, really sick and they need to come in for a septic workup and possibly some IV fluids. Diagnostic tests that we would do with the child who is having a recurrent fever that lasts for a few days um, would be, as I said, a septic workup. So we would do blood cultures. We would do urine cultures. Um, there could be an indication that we do a lumbar puncture as well. And then we try to find out uh, what are these results saying. A lot of times a physician will go ahead and start a child on IV antibiotics, broad spectrum, just so we're covering whatever the uh, the potential infection could be until we get results of the cultures because it takes a lot of times two to three days for the cultures to come back. And then once we get the results, we will know whether we need to change the antibiotic or if we're using the correct antibiotic. So um, a skin infection that could happen with children that happens a lot, especially children who are in daycare and because they don't have any um, barriers, they're all touchy feeling on each other. And then um, also they may go and hug the staff and things like that. So impetigo is a bacterial skin infection. It is highly contagious. So if one or more children have this, um, they ask that the child stay home for sure. But this could spread very quickly, as I said, in a daycare or a schoolroom setting. Usually it happens on the extremities. And then they'll go to the face because the child is touching their face. It may be in the diaper area, the buttocks, also the scalp. There is um, a seven to 10 day incubation period. So they ask that the patient stay home for uh, probably about 14 days. And then um, the lesions are contagious until it's all healed up. So very special care as far as not sharing towels, um, cleaning the bathroom, especially after a tub bath, maybe not even doing a tub bath if there are lots of lesions on the skin. And um, sometimes the physician will order 
antibiotic treatment for this patient, especially if they're really sick and they're having a fever. So we'll see the lesions when we assess this child that are very, very itchy, and then they may bleed easily or open easily. Also, the lesions are like vesicles and um, they have like a golden crust or a honey colored crust over them. And as I said, as they rupture, they pass the um, infection on to other areas of the body. So we do um, recommend that the child takes something for the itching as well to help calm that all down. And so they're not spreading it from their leg to their face and so on. So a lot of times the physician, as I said, may order um, antibiotics to be put on the lesions for about seven to 10 days until they're all um, healed up. If it's a severe problem, they will be admitted and given IV antibiotics, or they could be given oral antibiotics depending on um, how severe it is. And then we talk to the parents about soaking and removing the crust three times a day. So it's just like they put a little dressing that's soaked with something on the lesions and um, remove the crust. And also, as I said, giving medication to help with the itching. Um, we encourage the parents to leave the lesions open to air, if at all possible. So that promotes more healing. Um, we talked to the parents about not sharing, as I said, towels, linens, uh, eating utensils, washing their hands really, really good, wearing gloves when they're taking care of the child, especially when they're soaking the lesions and things like that. Um, sometimes we tell them to put socks on the child's hands because they are scratching so much um, that now their their fingernails are causing more of a problem. So we make sure that they keep the child's hands washed and maybe cut their fingernails shorter. And then um, talking to them also about using some type of antibacterial soap when they're bathing the child and making sure that they sleep alone and not with others so as to spread the um, rash. Other things that we look at with infectious problems are um, transmission of pathogens. And you all have talked about this previously in Nursing 120, but what modes of transmission would be direct contact, it could be airborne, it could be fecal oral, or it could be um, vector borne, meaning that it comes from some type of insect or animal. And then um, the other thing would be direct contact, um, and that would be transmission through saliva, breast milk, mucosa, things such as that. Um, one of the newer threats in San Diego County that we still are kind of keeping our eye on is the Zika virus. And that is a vector borne a transmission and it's transmitted by the mosquito. So the reason why this is so important is because women of childbearing age and also we've noticed that men also, um, if they were infected with the Zika virus, could pass this on to a baby causing microcephaly in the fetus. And then, um, once the child is born, we look at other severe issues the child might have. Of course, they're going to have a learning disability. They may have seizure activity. They may have failure to thrive issues. So um, we worry about this and we are still monitoring this. Um, it was the big outbreak also in Brazil of Zika virus. So we, um, as I said, are continuing to monitor this situation 
And the other new threat for us as well would be the um, COVID virus. And we're looking to see if um, how much of a transmission from mother to baby happens with that. And that's still being studied. And we're looking to see if pregnant women are immunized, if they will pass that immunity on to their baby. But we're still not sure about that. We're still studying that as well. So I am injections. We uh, need to go over this a little bit. Um, there are various sites that we would use for IM injections. Um, a lot of times with babies, we'll use the vastus lateralis. And then um, if the injection is more than half a milliliter, we would have to give two injections before the neonate because it has to be separate. And then if it's an infant, we're only allowed to give one milliliter as an injection. So as I said, if it's more than that, we have to separate the doses and give two injections. A lot of times we try to give the two injections simultaneously if we could possibly um, do this. And then we use the vastus lateralis up until about three years of age because I said um, if the child is walking, we don't want to put an injection there. There are, there's a slide with various um, intramuscular injection sites, and I um, just ask you to have a look at this, and it talks about, because um, some infants or babies are getting more than one injection when they go to see their pediatrician, so um, it might take two people to give the injections, and then they have to do um, various sites. Um, and then there's methods of pain relief before injections. Some clinics or physician's office might use ice or they might use a numbing medication um, before injections or also before IV starts. So that's very helpful for the child when they're um, having anxiety and then they understand that they're going to get a little bit of medication or some type of diversion so that they don't feel the pain as much. This section is going to talk about childhood skin conditions and potential treatments and things that could happen with childhood skin. We all know that skin is the largest organ of the body. It's the first level of protection. So it's very important to keep, keep the skin intact as much as possible, especially with the younger children, because as I talked about before, some of them have a decreased or compromised immune system. Um, examples of age-related skin manifestations, it could be that the infant is born with what we call a birthmark, um, and sometimes that could be just a small area on the body, or it could be a large area, it could cover the face, it could cover the buttocks, and things such as that. So we do um, look at birthmarks when infants are born to see if it has any vasculature, because some birthmarks that happen in infancy could lead to other bad conditions. Say if it's a, a birthmark that has a vascular bed to it and it's located on the neck, then we really try to monitor the child, the neck or the face. We monitor them to see if this grows and is, if it's going to cause any breathing issues or any visual issues, things such as that. As that. And then also... Um, Atopic dermatitis, also known as eczema, happens in early childhood related sometimes to dietary issues or it could be um, allergic things in the environment such as certain detergents and things like that. In the school age children, we worry about ringworm 
happening, which is also highly contagious. And then in adolescence, we have acne. And that um, is troublesome for some adolescents because of their um, body image issues. So with newborns, we have that um, they have very thin skin. And so they have increased absorption of chemicals and medications. And it's very important as we're teaching parents about newborn care to talk to them, if, especially if there's a topical medication that um, sometimes this medication, just use it in small amounts and not use large amounts on them. Or maybe if it um, has certain chemicals in it, that they may need to wipe off the previous dose before they put on a new dose. And then also um, babies have less subcutaneous fat. You guys have already gone over this in Dr. Aliyev's class. And then um, their skin is more supple because they'll have more water to their skin than adults. And then this causes them to um, become dehydrated very easily. And then all races of infants are pale at birth. And so you have to give them a few months uh, for their melanin to come in. A lot of families are concerned about the, the child's appearance at birth and why are they so pale and things such as that. And so it's because they haven't fully developed the melanin that they were born with. And they are very sun sensitive. So we do have to teach parents and caregivers about, um, especially in San Diego, since it's so sunny all the time, we need to teach them about the um, harmful effects of the sun and keeping them in a shaded area or having the uh, infant carrier with uh, the sunshade pulled over because a lot of times young babies cannot get sunscreen because of the chemicals that are contained in it. And then um, the sweat glands aren't really functioning a lot until the child reaches adolescence. So we need to monitor young children for um, effects of heat and making sure that they stay cool and well hydrated. So when we do a skin and a hair assessment on a child, we're going to look at the texture of the skin, the temperature to see if there's any edema, to look at the color of the skin. Um, when we look at hair, we're going to see if there's any, um, if the hair is evenly distributed. Is it clean? Do they have lice? Um, the hair coloring and are there patches missing where there shouldn't be patches missing? Um, if there's a complaint or, a, you know, presentation of lesions, what type of lesions are they? Do they look like they're burn lesions or do they look like they're some type of skin infection going on? Is there pain anywhere? Um, and then also, is there a family history of any skin issues such as skin cancer? Um, or is there a history of the ch um, children having albinism when they're born? and things such as that, because this could um, lead to more studies being done. So I have slides about types of lesions, and this is just um, so that if you're reading a report or you need to write a report, you can have the correct terminology as far as the lesion is concerned. And then also, um, when you are writing it up, if you could potentially have a ruler and measure like the size of the lesion or just kind of say dime size or quarter size or something like that. And then you talk about um, if it's discolored, what type of pigment it has, um, the shape of it, where it's located on the body and things such as that. Um, the wound care nurses are really, really good with doing descriptions of skin issues and also um, anyone who is like a forensic nurse or something forensically trained they have a really good method of charting 
issues. And then there are pictures of skin lesions for you to have a look at so you'll have a better understanding of what's going on with that. And then um, things that would affect wound healing would be for sure nutrition. Um, Does this patient have any other underlying conditions such as diabetes? Is there a circulation problem? Are they extremely stressed out? Um, And then what does the environment around the wound looking like? Um, And as I said, wound care nurses are really good with describing skin lesions. And also they're very good with treating the skin lesion, such as what type of dressing needs to go on there. Or do we need to leave it without a dressing and put some other type of healing ointment on there? Um, So it's very important to follow the guidelines that the wound care nurses give about healing certain wounds and also of note, when a patient comes in, it's, in su- it's super important for you to inspect the skin, all areas of the skin, because if the, the, you miss something and then they develop a pressure sore, the hospital ends up paying for that treatment. So if you can note that this sore was happening before or at um, admit, admission, then we can start to do methods to keep this from developing into a worse issue. Say you have um, some discoloration or redness on the tailbone of a patient, then you would do things to maybe turn this patient more frequently or not put them in that position to allow that area to heal a little bit. So that's why it's so important as far as the skin assessment for patients coming in. Um, And then Signs that a wound is infected, of course, would be redness. There would be pain. Um, it would feel warmer than the rest of the body. There may be an odor coming from, um, and there may be an odor coming from the wound. And there also might be some type of um, exudate or um, pus or drainage coming from the wound. So these are things that would indicate that a wound is infected. So basically. You're going to make sure that you have your hands washed really good and you're going to wear gloves and you would um, do some type of mild soap and water for the wound. Um, And this could be directions that you're giving a parent or a caregiver at home. In the hospital, they do have uh, wound care sprays that you could spray on the wound that aren't caustic or harmful to the area. And it just kind of uh, cleans the wound a little bit and gives a little bit of antibacterial effect to the wound. And then, as I said, it depends on what's going on, whether you cover it. So just know that as a nurse, you do have wound care nurses in your hospitals and you can um, contact them for a referral or for further instruction about um, how to care for different various wounds. And so um, other topical therapies that could be potentially put there would be steroids and then um, antibiotics or antifungal treatments that would happen. And then um, for dressings, a moist dressing is best so that you're not ripping off the top layer of healing when you take off um, a dressing. A lot of times you're also monitoring for symptoms. So if the patient is talking about the area being very, um, very itchy, then we would give them medications for that. We encourage them not to scratch. We give them cool compresses or uh, soothing baths to help with that issue. And so um, we monitor to see if those symptoms are relieved or if we need to do any other type of interventions for them. 
Um, skin infections that are bacterial are very worrisome. As, as I said, they can be highly contagious. So um, we try to make sure that they don't continue the patient doesn't continue to scratch that area because then an abscess could form, which could lead to a surgical intervention. And we also do our best to help with the itching that happens. And um, maybe if it's really bad, we might up their nutrition and things such as that to aid in healing. There's a slide of impetigo, which I had talked about a little bit earlier. Other um, Viral skin infections, as I said, could be chickenpox. It could be herpes simplex one or two. Um, and then fifth disease. We also have warts that happen in childhood as well. And then um, most communicable diseases usually have a pretty bad rash. It may start on the trunk and then um, develop out to the extremities of the body. Fungal infections that happen, we see this a lot of times in um, children who are involved in sports, and it could be that um, it's some type of yeast or athlete's foot, it could be a ringworm, it could be jock itch, um, so we do our best to treat them with a superficial or atopical um, antifungal medication, it could be a spray or it could be a cream. This usually transmits from person to person. So as, as in the case of athletes, we encourage them not to use, um, not to share towels. And then if they are going to shower, we ask them to use flip-flops in the shower so that they don't get athlete's foot. Um, and then we make making sure that the showers in the gyms are cleaned and disinfected properly. Other things that happen... Um, would be like, say, the child has gone on a hike um, and they could come in contact with poison ivy, poison oak, or sumac. And so um, these, when they touch the leaf, the plant's leaves or the stems, then it causes them to have a rash or a lesion on their body. And then it could be very sensitive, especially to the sun. Um, and we treat this with topical things such as Benadryl, calamine lotion, we might recommend that they have an Aveeno bath. Um, or if it's really, really bad, they may prescribe a steroid gel for them to put on until um, they the, it soothes itself or goes away a little bit. Sometimes the prescription might have to be an oral steroid if it's a really, really bad reaction and it's causing lots of issues to the child. Um, this one is usually not contagious unless the person has touched the chemical and then they touch someone else. And so um, it's very important to make sure that any lesions that start to develop are cleaned and then um, it won't be transferred from person to person. Um, drug reactions are another issue that we have with children and, um, they can be very, very severe or they could just be a mild drug reaction. Um, red man syndrome is one of the most common ones that's seen, and that's usually a reaction to vancomycin. And so we have to watch, especially with children who have, are just now receiving this drug for the first time, we have to watch for reactions where they, um, they get their hands are red, their face is very red, and they start to feel really bad. And so this would be that we need to stop um, giving this medication, or maybe we need to pre-medicate the child with um, Tylenol and Benadryl before continuing to give them the medication. 
Stevens-Johnson syndrome is also another reaction that happens, and this could be a result of antibiotics that were given or anticonvulsants, pain relievers, any prescription medication that happens. And um, this one is very severe. It could be fatal if it's not seen about in a timely manner. And so we would treat Stevens-Johnson pretty much the same way as we do other adverse drug reactions. We would stop the drug. We would do corticosteroid therapies if it's very severe. And we also give them antihistamines to counteract the reaction. So Stevens-Johnson is very serious. As I said, it could be life-threatening. And it's usually where the patient kind of... Um, the skin is eroded from the inside out. So everything on the inside is affected, such as oral mucosa and things such as that, maybe even um, gut tissue. And then they start to develop all of these really bad lesions on the outside. It affects their vision, everything. So it's very important for us to um, start interventions as soon as we notice this happening. Other things that happen with kids, of course, would be foreign body um, getting into their skin because they move around and run around so much. So it could be that they have a splinter from wood. They might get um, spines from a cactus. They could just um, have, you know, shards of glass because something fell and broke. Um, so we make sure that we tell the parents how to possibly remove it if it's a splinter or something, um, doing it very carefully. And sometimes kids come in and they haven't told their parents that they have this splinter in their finger or their toe and it becomes infected. And so at that point we have to um, administer antibiotics to them. And also there may be some type of medicated soak they would need. And then um, we look at removing the foreign body. So scabies and lice are two issues that have come up a lot recently, especially with children who um, have less than desired living situations such as they may be homeless or they may, you know, um, be living with multiple people in one household. And so scabies are little mites that get the female get into the skin and it will cause inflammation and severe itching. So we treat this topically. Um, and then there's also an oral treatment that we will give them. And this one is also very highly contagious. So Anyone who is admitted to the hospital for treatment of scabies um, would need to be in isolation. And then the staff would need to make sure that they are dressed in protective gear when they're treating this patient. Scabies likes to hide in the warm, moist places. So it would be under the arms, in the groin area, on the back, in between the fingers, in between the toes. So these are areas where you would look to if the patient is um, itching or when you do your assessment. Other thing um, that happens with children is head lice. Um, and because they're not in school right now, I'm sure they don't have outbreaks of head lice that much now. But it's very common in school-aged kids. And because they're, you know, up against each other, touchy-feely, sharing combs, sharing uh, hoodies and things like that. So um, this could potentially happen and it could spread very fast. Um, the nits usually hatch within seven to 10 days. And so this could potentially go on for a month if not treated correctly. So, um, we, we do treatment with medicated shampoos and then we have to comb the uh, nits out of the hair. And then a lot of schools used to sit, send kids home 
but now the schools uh, have because kids were missing so much time out of class, they have a different agreement where they just tell the parent, hey, we checked your child today. They do have, they are positive for head lice and you need to get treatment and um, work on sending them back to school in a couple of days and not staying home as long as they had been before. Um, We do have ways of preventing this. So in order to prevent the spread of lice, especially in the classroom. They don't have carpeting in the classroom. They don't have bean bags or sofa chairs. Um, they make sure that kids aren't sharing hats, combs, or brushes. Uh, anything that has to be vacuumed, any surface gets vacuumed. Um, if the child is sent home with head lice, they will be sent home with instructions about making sure to wash the towels, the linen, the clothing in hot water and dry it in a hot dryer to kill the nits, and then soaking the combs and brushes uh, or boiling them in water. Also, um, getting the lice care kits from the pharmacy because these are over the counter. And then, um, excuse me, a lot of times if there's a contraindication to the child taking the, having the um, shampoo, or maybe it's a pregnant teen, then we talk to them about using something oily and putting that in the hair and letting it sit overnight and that will suffocate and kill the lice, but you still have to do the comb out. So we were having outbreaks over the county with super lice infections and I'll have you watch that video. But the biggest thing is to educate parents about this. Um, Lice love clean hair. So they don't discriminate. Um, Sometimes we talk to parents about maybe washing the hair every other day or once a week or something like that so that um, the lice don't have a clean environment to keep spreading. And then we talk about, you know, classroom, uh, how to be good in the classroom and not be, you know, hugging each other and laying down on the carpet together and things such as that. And as I said, because some classrooms are very nice and elaborate and they have a little rug for the kids to lay down on or sit on for reading hour or something like that then that needs to be either treated or removed and also in the house they have to treat the furniture and things such as that and then if they the child still has symptoms of head lice they will need to be retreated other things that happens with kids um, would be insects bites and stings um, the big one that we look out for would be a spider. Um, if the spider bites them, they may have a bad reaction. Sometimes MRSA is mistaken for a spider bite because of the way it looks. So the bad spiders that we watch are brown recluse, black widow, because um, the child could have a very bad reaction to this and um, cause ischemia to tissues. So it is an emergency and we need to get them seen about right away. And bee stings are the other thing. It's very common for kids to be allergic to a bee sting. And so they could potentially have an anaphylactic reaction to that. So if they are stung by a bee, it's um, important that we get them some type of intervention as soon as possible and that we monitor them to make sure that they don't go into anaphylaxis. So I give you um, slides about whether it's a spider bite or not and how it would affect a person's body. And then other things we worry about is um, 
tick bites. Not so much here in San Diego, but more on the East Coast. Um, kids are susceptible to Rocky Mountain spotted fever because they've been bitten by a tick or a flea. And so um, that is one of the concerns that we have because it could be mistaken for something else, like maybe a rheumatoid arthritis issue or something such as that. And then Lyme disease is another tick-borne disorder that happens in the U.S. So we encourage parents, if they've been out camping or whatever, to check the child for any particular areas where a, a tick could be hiding, such as specifically in the hair, under the clothing, the back, and things like that. Um, and then we try to talk to them about using certain repellents that are child safe um, and then also talking to them about using the appropriate clothing if they are going to be out and about camping and things such as that covering the arms covering covering the legs um, having on hiking boots with uh, that are high up on the leg as well so I give you uh, slides about Lyme's disease and Rocky Mountain spotted fever and then we have animal bites, which are very common, especially in the spring and summer because kids are out, they're running around. Um, and Rady's Children's Hospital does a big campaign about how to prevent dog bites in the summertime because it could be a very trusted animal that you guys um, have known, the family has known for a long time. And then the child does something and it startles the dog and then they bite because they're trying to protect themselves so usually this is kids who are um you know commonly bitten by animals that are known to the family or it could be the family pet and so we talk to them about making sure that they treat the wound as soon as possible so rinsing it um, washing it off if it's bleeding applying pressure they do need to come into urgent care or the emergency department to have the wound assessed. And so they'll rinse the wound. They may go ahead and do some prophylactic antibiotics, depending on what type of bite. Did it break the skin? Is the wound open? Things such as that. Um, also, if the child has been scratched by a cat and they start to develop a fever or their lymph nodes are swollen, we bring them in also for assessment. And then we try to find out the shot record of the pet. Have they been immunized for rabies? When was the last rabies vaccine that the pet got? Because then we will go ahead and prophylactically give um, the children a shot to prevent uh, rabies as well. So there's a slide about some of the stats for dog bites in children and then um, how to prevent that. And as I said, running past a dog or doing certain movements or noticing the dog's reaction, do they have their, is their tail wagging and down, or do they have a, a positive stance and bearing teeth, then that lets you know that you need to um, not be in the area of that animal because you're irritating them. Um, things that we also have found in the county lately are rabies, and mostly it's, there have been a few children who have contracted rabies, um, one child was playing with a bat. So mostly it's found in infected animals and then they transmit it to humans. So the animal might be very, very sick or very angry and agitated and snap and um, bite the child. The one child that had rabies, they it was playing with a bat that was really sick and um, 
the bat bit the child on the hand. So symptoms would be um, them ha- the child having a fever and they need to get treated right away, especially if the bite is witnessed and they will have to have um, immune, immune, immune globulin. So that would be IVIG. And then they would get vaccinated for rabies and also um, closely monitored. And this would be things that would be reported to the county. Um, human bites are another issue. Toddlers bite each other a lot. And then also as a form of child abuse, um, a child might have bite marks on them. So um, it's very important to get this area treated as well, especially if it breaks through the skin because humans have lots of bacteria in their mouth. And so um, we don't want to cause further infection. So it is a high risk for infection. And then we would treat the wound by washing it out. We may apply a, a pressure dressing if it's bleeding put ice on it to help with some of the pain. And then um, the child or the person who was bitten might need a tetanus vaccine if they haven't had one. So there's a list of all the bacteria that's found in the mouth of a human that potentially needs to be treated if a patient is bit. And then um, also managing animal bites. This little slide talks about that. So you have to you know, make sure you clean the area very well, put some antibiotic ointment on there. Um, the patient might need IV antibiotics if it's a very bad bite, um, tetanus vaccine, rabies vaccine. And then if um, it's a snake or a spider bite, they sometimes will require antivenom infusions as well. Um, contact dermatitis is uh, another issue with skin. And um, it's also known as eczema, and it could be a reaction to some type of chemical exposure, or it could be a reaction to a food allergy. So um, we monitor these children very carefully. A lot of them are itching constantly. They don't get any sleep because they're scratching so much. So we do our best to keep the skin soothed as as much as possible, which might mean they have some type of topical agent that we're putting on, or maybe they're taking a medication um, to prevent the itching. We look at the areas that would cause um, areas where the contact dermatitis would be caused to get worse, such as the diaper area. And we encourage parents to change the diaper as frequently as needed. And then um, sometimes we ask them to leave the skin open to air for healing. So um, nursing considerations with this This is when we would call in the wound care nurse to help and they make up uh, certain balms and ointments that are repellent to uh, urine and also feces and we give the skin as much rest as possible. So um, not continually cleaning with wipes that have chemical in them. It would just be cleaning with like sterile water and things such as that. Um, And then if it's a yeast infection that could potentially have been caused by um, the child maybe have been on high doses of antibiotics or something like that, then we do um, topical medication to treat the yeast infection. Um, There are slides for diaper dermatitis and eczema. And then um, eczema could also potentially be a hereditary disorder, or it could be part of some other chronic condition that the child has. It could be in conjunction with that. And so um, 
as I said, we do our best to treat the skin properly. Sometimes this could be mistaken for child abuse. So we have to um, make sure we get a good history and physical. And then we talk to the parent or the caregiver about um, using mild or non-soap things to clean the skin. And then we do a hydrocortisone cream to decrease the inflammation. And then, um, as I said, we would relieve the itching with either topical medication or an oral medication. And then we do our best um, as far as trying to keep the child from scratching so much to prevent a secondary infection like a bacterial infection. Um, Seborrheic dermatitis is also known as cradle cap. And you guys may have discussed this in Dr. Aliyev's class, but it's an inflammation of the scalp usually seen in infants, and it could be on the um, eyelids as well, the nasal labial folds, and sometimes in the ears. And then we talk to the parents about removing the crust and then um, shampooing the hair with an anti-seborrheic shampoo. A lot of times that could be found over the counter, or it could be a prescription medication. Acne, um, the other situation that's found in adolescents usually happens in early adolescence, prepubescent or pubescent um, individuals. And that's just um, where there's a flare-up of the hair follicles and the sebaceous glands. Usually happens more in boys than girls. And then it just could be everywhere, face, neck, back. Um, and as I said, this is when children become very aware of what they look like and they um, are very embarrassed by the outbreaks. So we recommend that they use uh, some type of cleanser. A lot of times there are over-the-counter things that they can use. And then if it's really, really severe, they would see a dermatologist or their family care provider and they may get medications that are prescription. And that could include benzoyl peroxide, salicylic acid, other things like that. And some children who suffer from severe cystic acne may be um, referred to a dermatologist to have acne facials in which they um, are treated medically and then uh, some of the blackheads and pimples are removed in the office. Burns happen a lot of times in toddlers and this happens because they may be very hungry or they may be trying to see what the adult is doing and pull up on the stove and accidentally get burned or they might pull um, a pan off of the stove or a hot plate off and get burns from that. It could be that they um, get scalded from hot water. Maybe they're in the tub playing and then they turn the faucet on and get scalded that way. Or they um, toss over the parent's coffee and the coffee burns their skin. So there's lots of different ways that a child could get burned. And of course, you know, house fires and things like that. Um, ch children falling into the flames of a fire pit when they're out in their backyard. So um, we need to find out how the burn happened, how much of the body is burned. Um, was this a situation of child abuse or was it accidental? Um, and then we need to make sure that we treat the area and if this is a burn where maybe they inhaled something caustic or they may have had smoke inhalation we worry about their airway so we do our best to preserve the airway we treat the area to try to stop the burning and we give them some pain control a lot of times 
this is where uh, if it's really bad a patient might be admitted to um, the burn unit at the U because children um, Rady's Children's Hospital does not have a burn unit or beds for um, children who are victims of burns so they would go to UCSD to that burn unit and the major thing that we need to look at also is um, preventing infection because that wound is very open and giving them good nutrition to promote healing um, rehabilitating the area say it's a hand that got burned severely we need to do our best to try to keep those fingers from curling in and becoming um, hard for the patient to use and also psychosocial considerations because now they're going to have some scarring they've done a lot with plastics and um, skin graphing to decrease scarring but the there will be still some scarring left over and so um, talking to them and reassuring them that um, and the parents as well that we'll do our best um, other things to talk about when um, we're talking about burn prevention education is to look in the garment and make sure that it is flame retardant. Um, I guess back in the 80s, I think, is when they started um, making sure that kids who had um, kids' pajamas had stuff in it that was flame retardant. So if they were to be involved in a house fire, the, the clothing wouldn't burn or it would slow the rate of the burn. Also, lots of furnitures are treated with flame retardants as well now, especially mattresses. And then um, making sure that children are put to sleep in clothing that is their size so if they were to have to get up and, and run out of the house they're not tripping and falling um, and then using smoke detectors as much as possible uh, kids will sleep through a smoke detector they have done studies and found that um, kids fall into such a deep sleep but we need to talk to kids about in their living area what would happen if a fire was to start in the house like how do you get out and things like that. So as a family unit together, get together and talk about an exit plan and um, where you would go and maybe even do other fire safety things such as purchasing fire blankets or fire ladders to um, be able to escape the house. Um, we talk about characteristics of the burn and this is where someone who is well-versed in burns and certified in burns um, would look at it and decide whether it's first, second, four, down to fourth degree, and then how severe is the injury and how much of the body surface area is involved with this burn. And then, um, as I talked about inhalation burn injuries, kids who have been involved in issues where um, there was, they were cooking meth and the, um, the chemicals exploded or something such as that, might have issues with um, maybe the outside of their skin looks really good, but you notice the nares or the lips look very reddened, and that's because they've inhaled some of the um, poisonous gases. So we have to worry about their airway, and um, they would require being intubated and sedated to keep that airway open. Um, the other thing that we have with complications of burn would be shock, of course, because... Um, it's uh, they've inhaled and then they may have um, some type of infection that forms because of what they've inhaled. So we look at um, their lungs. And as I said, we try to keep their airway open. We look at their esophagus, um, things such as that. Are they going to develop pulmonary edema? 
or any emboli. Um, this talks about the mechanism of a respiratory injury from, from burns on the next slide. And then therapeutically, we do um, emergency care. We assess the victim's condition. We look at the airway. We cover the burn to prevent it from getting infected. We do our best to um, medicate and stop the burning process and uh, medicate for pain. And then the child, as I said, is um, sent to a higher level of care, which would be the burn unit at UCSD if they need a higher level of care. Um, I have another slide about burns. And then um, we would also rehydrate or give them fluid therapy replacement. Nutrition is big too once the wound starts to heal. And then we'll medicate with um, antibiotics, uh, pain medications, analgesics, anesthetics. And then especially if they're going to have some type of wound care to the burn, we give them medications to make it as as comfortable as possible. And that would be um, some type of pain medication or sometimes in certain cases with children who have severe, severe burns, they are taken to the OR and sedated. So the burn care can happen there and then they are um, come back to their room after that. Um, just minor burns, we do uh, wound cleansing. We apply some type of topical um, dressing and ointment to that. And then um, we say not to pop the blisters and remove them. We just say to allow them to pop on their own if they do or just allow it to heal if they do. Um, and then as far as dressings, it depends. You don't want to have anything that's too tight and not allowing some air movement there. And then um, you can cover the wound with an antibiotic cream also. And then, um, as I said, as far as the dressing, you don't want it on too tight that it's occluding the air movement and the healing. And I have pictures here for you. And then uh, skin grafts are used a lot with burn care. And then um, physical and occupational therapy, you would also have involved the nutritionist and then um, just kind of emotional support for the family and the child as well. Um, also, we talk about because of the length of time for wound healing with a burn patient, are they going to lose time out of school? So we, if they're up to it, we try to get them in a program where they can make up their schoolwork. And then the other thing, as I said, would be nutrition. They may not feel up to eating. And so it may be that they have to have an NG tube or a G tube place for supplemental feeding. Um, the other thing is we talk about um, their body image and, you know, try to help them feel confident about their how they're going to look. And then uh, also... We'll have physical therapy and occupational therapy to help prevent any contractures that could happen. And then just being affectionate and teaching the parents and the caregivers not to be scared of the child um, so as to incite fear and anxiety in the child as well. Um, there are different methods I'm showing you in these slides for burns. The other type of burn that we look out for in kids is sunburn so we talk to the parents about um, if the child is over over six months old, then we would use a sunscreen that says it's specifically for kids and we put it on all over. And then we also use um, certain clothing that has a sunscreen um, type of effect to it. 
And then between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., we ask that they stay out of the sun. Even if it's cloudy, the child can still get a sunburn. So we talk to them about that. And we also talk to parents and teach them how to use eye protection, eye protection sunglasses or either um, putting on a sun hat so the um, kids don't get so photosensitive. Um, we don't see this that much here as far as cold injury or frostbite. You may see it um, if a child has gone skiing in the mountains of California, but a lot of times on the East Coast when the weather gets severely cold, you might have a child um, who suffers from frostbite and um, you won't be tested on that. I'm just giving you the information. So that's all I have for you. Thank you.